It's Monday, and it's eight. It's time to get on your hate, because everything that they say you think, they want to tell you how to speak whenever you say the way it is, or the way it'll be, become an anti-Semite, or even a Nazi. station says the same thing, maybe in a different voice, but the same spiel, could it be they're playing the same reel? I'm just asking you a question, but then again, when you do, You get labeled. The Goyam gets branded. Papa was a rolling stone. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. And when he died, Welcome to Truth is a New Hate. Time to get your hate on at eight. With Brother Paul and yours truly, Brother Joe. The following program is recommended for mature individuals and may contain material unsuitable for morons, cretins, and dishwipes. If you are a moron or a member of the PTL club, please turn off your radio because we don't need any more stupid, narrow-minded, pencil-neck geeks who wouldn't know the First Amendment if it came up and bit them on the butt. Thank you. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You're located at www.radio.thewatchman.us where our broadcast stream is located along with a chat room or www.thewatchman.us Just click the Listen Live link. We, also, we are simulcasting at TalkShoe hosted by White Media. The show name is Truth is the New Hate. Yes, it is. That's located at www.talkshoe.com you can easily find the broadcast by entering the call ID number into the research box at the top of any TalkShoe webpage. And that number is 
1-800-624-1234-639. From there, you may register as a guest or if you have a TalkShoe account, sign in. This will allow you to listen to the broadcast as well as participate by either the chat room located there or you can just call in via landlines, mobile cell phone, or VOIP. You may just listen and or participate in the broadcast. That phone number is 724-444-7444. That's 724-444-7444. And you will be prompted for the call ID number. And again, that number is 124-639. 124-639. Then press the pound key. I urge your support of the number one and hardest working American Patriot Band in America, Poker Face. Go to www.pokerface.com, sample the affordable music offerings, download your favorites. In Baltimore on Saturday, January 17th, a silent protest was held in opposition to the celebration of Confederate generals during the same weekend as Martin Luther King Day. Speakers said they are simply honoring Generals Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and defending against efforts to rewrite history. Only a parasite would defame the names of Generals Lee and Jackson. Only a parasite would denigrate the service of our Confederate ancestors. And only a parasite would inject the malicious bowel of calumny and fabrication into the bloodstream of our Southern heritage. Opponents note although the statue honoring Lee and Jackson dates back to the 1940s, it only became a rallying point in Baltimore in 1987, after Martin Luther King Day was established as a federal holiday. 17-year-old high school senior and neighborhood resident Suraju Kayende organized a counter-protest with his family and a local anti-racist Quaker group. Ever since I was five, I'd always hear the drums, and I would look outside, and I thought they were very interesting. But then later, when I became older, I started to realize what they were doing it for. And I don't have a problem with them celebrating Stonewall Jackson Lee and his birthday, except I don't appreciate how they do it on Martin Luther King's birthday weekend. This is author and historian Gerald Horn. I think it's also a pro-racist response. It's an anti-black response. Obviously, they know that the establishment of the King holiday was a great people's victory. It was a setback for those who hold dear Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. What do you say to people that say change the date because it's inflammatory to African Americans and that like the Confederate flag is a symbol of white supremacy and, and racism? No, the Confederate flag belongs to the it, it's different groups steal the Confederate flag for their own purposes. The people who oppose, I mean, they're entitled to, this is what this country is all about, freedom of speech. So if they oppose us, we do what we think is best for our interests. They're entitled to what they, the way they think. I'd like to have something that they're smoking, because obviously it's quite potent. If we were to awake from the dead, Confederate States of America President Jefferson Davis and Vice President Alexander Stevens of Georgia, they would be quite shocked to hear that their secession had nothing to do with slavery. They said at the time that it was all about slavery. And, of course, they were correct. It's not political. It's to honor these two great men. 
Devon Love, director of research and public policy for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, says the ideology represented by the pro-Confederate groups are more prevalent today than many would like to acknowledge. Oftentimes, people reduce the concept of racism and white supremacy to the kinds of folks you talk to today, who are celebrating a legacy that was kind of overtly celebration of Southern uh, plantation and chattel slavery. Um, what I think we should learn from demonstrations and groups like the one you encounter today is that America and the collective American consciousness is more akin to those types of folks than it likes to realize. And I think when you say that their statement is that, they, that it's not racist, it's the same way that the average society tries to say that we don't live in a racist society, you know, because they, they will make the argument that the Confederacy is just a cultural history they want to preserve you know, in a way that they try to distance it from the damage that it did and that it continues to do to black people. Um, and so this is a move that is very common, not just in neo-Confederate uh, representatives or neo-Confederate um, activists or, or political figures, but this is, you know, prevalent in mainstream American discourse. From Baltimore, this is Jessel Noor. These are some interesting facts about Martin Luther King Jr., who led the civil rights movement in the United States from the 1950s through the 1960s until his untimely assassination. I think it's important to look at the full rounded humanity of a leader. One of the things that happens that really demotivates us to achieve excellence in our lives is we think that these people are these lofty gods with no failings or flaws. And uh, I think it's important to put them in human perspective so we feel that we flawed specimens can also achieve uh, great things despite perhaps a multitude of sins. So I hope you'll be patient with me. This is very interesting stuff. So Martin Luther King, Jr., Plagiarist. Uh, this is uh, interesting. So while gathering, in, uh, he got a uh, he was a reverend, and he was also he got a doctorate in philosophy, um, in theology, which is like getting a doctorate of science in superstition. But in uh, so while gathering and collating King's writings for publication in the late 1980s, the editors of Stanford University's Martin Luther King Jr. Papers Project discovered extensive, extensive plagiaries in his academic papers, including his 1955 dissertation for his doctoral degree at Boston University. All these instances of plagiarism had escaped detection during his lifetime, even by the, his dissertation supervisors at Boston. Uh, he started plagiarizing as an undergraduate when Boston University founded a commission to look into it. They found that 45% uh, of the first part and 21% of the second part of his dissertation was stolen, um, copied, um, uh, this is uh, fraud. This is counterfeiting. Uh, but they insisted that no thought should be given to re revoking Dr. King's doctoral degree. Uh, now, uh, in addition to his um, dissertation and some of his books, um, many of his major speeches, including the I Have a Dream speech, were plagiarized, or at least parts of them were plagiarized. And um, I will uh, put the links for all this below. Uh, is this important? Uh, yeah, I think it's it's actually quite important. Um, he was a liar. 
uh, with regards to some very, very important stuff. Uh, he constantly, he was doctor, reverend, you know, he was Dr. Martin, so he put the doctor, but he had obtained it fraudulently. You know, he was very much against unearned privilege, but he lied uh, and cheated and uh, counterfeited and misrepresented and stole in order to gain his academic credentials and then hid this. You know, you, you could you make mistakes. We've all made mistakes. We can even make grievous moral errors, and then we can say later on, you know, I got to confess, I did something wrong, but he knew about all of this. Obviously, he had met a multi-year uh, plagiarism history and did not reveal it. I uh, kept it hidden for his whole life, as, of course, did those who followed him. So if somebody's dishonest about that, do they really and, and, and refuse to acknowledge it, uh, can they really be classed among the prime moral instructors of mankind? Now, uh, people on the right uh, have, to some degree, co-opted Martin Luther based upon the line in the I Have a Dream speech, wherein he says, you know, we should judge people not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. Uh, it's, a, it's a good line, and I, of course, I agree with that. <laughs> that sounds entirely right to me. But, you know, one line does not a philosophy make, and he was a big fan of quotas and racial set-asides and... Um, uh, so, uh, in his book, Where Do We Go From Here?, he said that, quote, a society that has done something special against the Negro for hundreds of years must now do something special for him to equip him to compete on a just and equal basis. So, he expressed support for quotas. He threatened boycotts of businesses that he felt were not hiring enough blacks. Now, the reason that I'm, I'm talking about this is that uh, he is known, as was Mahatma Gandhi, for an advocate of nonviolence, nonviolent social change. Yeah, well, there's a little bit of a problem with that, in that the government has a lot of guns, and the government has a lot of police, and a lot of prison cells, and if you don't obey the law, then men with guns will knock not so politely at your house and drag you away and try you. And if you are found guilty of breaking those laws, they will throw you in prison where terrible things will happen to you with spoons and forks and other men's naughty bits. So it's kind of hard for me to get to the place where I can say, ah, this man who proposed government laws, uh, government coercion, government violence, to solve complex social, racial, and economic problems, this man is really into nonviolence. Like, you're not into nonviolence if you pay someone to do your violence for you. Uh, and the state, as Barack Obama has so memorably stated, is a monopoly of violence. It's an agency of coercion. So uh, it's kind of tough uh, to say that somebody is nonviolent when they want the government to point the guns for them. Uh, he also was uh, a big uh, fan of um, reparations for uh, slavery. Uh, he wrote, uh, no amount, oh, he said, no amount of gold could provide an adequate compensation for the exploitation and humiliation of the Negro, and Negro in America down through the centuries. Yet a price can be paid placed on unpaid wages. The ancient common law has always provided a remedy for the appropriation of the labor of one human being by another. Uh, this law should be made to apply for American Negroes. Um, so he wanted billions and billions of dollars to be uh, taken again at gunpoint from people who'd never owned slaves and given to people who never were slaves. 
Uh, you, you, you know, without a time machine and a robot army, you cannot go back and solve the problem of slavery. But um, uh, so, again, this is the initiation of force. It is the, the forcible uh, confiscation of wealth from one section of society uh, to be paid to another, where the section of society that's taken from is not the victimizers, and the people it's going to are not the current victims. Why there are after effects of slavery? Uh, of course, massive after effects of slavery, uh, which we'll get to uh, in a second. So, uh, not a man who is into nonviolence. And, you know, just touch on this very briefly, I mean, one of the great tragedies of social activism is that social activists almost always, the first thing they think is, let's have a protest, let's have a march, let's go to Washington, let's get Congress people involved, let's get a law, there ought to be a law. That's what people say, and it's unbelievably tragic. Because 99 times out of 100, the conditions that they wish to be remedied are caused by the state, are caused by the state. Uh, who enforced slavery? Not whitey. The state, right? It was the state that picked up the slaves who ran away. If, if slave owners had to pay for people to go and find the slaves who ran away, the, it all had to be socialized, all collectivized, right? Uh, in a place like Brazil, uh, they ended slavery just by saying, we're not going to catch the slaves anymore, and slavery was ended. They just started paying people. Once the government stops doing your dirty work, uh, virtue inevitably flourishes, and so it's really tragic, of course, that uh, somebody who'd suffered so much would then say, oh, you know, it'd be great to solve this problem, the state, because it's really been our friend. Uh, Jim Crow laws with the state, Two-Fifths with the state. Rosa Parks, you know, the um, communist-trained activist who uh, sat uh, on, the on, on the, like, moved to the front of the bus from the back, well, the bus company didn't want to put her in the back. It was a law. The government had a law that said you had the blacks had to go in the back. Why on earth would the bus company, who liked serving the poor and blacks were disproportionately poor uh, in this place and time, why on earth would the bus company want to annoy the blacks by putting them in the back? They're the best customers. No, it was a government law. So, again, everyone thinks it was a protest against racism. Uh, and it was a protest against uh, government laws. Bull Connor was a government. Anyway, the government employee. So. It's really tough to maintain these horrible injustices without state power, and yet the moment that people want to overturn these injustices, what do they want? More state power! <sighs> anyway, FBI surveillance showed that King had dozens of extram extramarital affairs. Now, a lot of these uh, records are sealed. Uh, they apparently are going to be unsealed in 2027. Uh, several agents who watched uh, Martin Luther King observed him engaged in many questionable acts, including buying prostitutes with SCLC money. Uh, Ralph Abernathy, who King called the best friend I have in the world, substantiated many of these charges in his autobiography, and the walls came tumbling down. In 1964, in a true move of staggering cosmic Old Testament scumbaggery, the FBI sent an audio tape of uh, Martin Luther King, um, one of his sexual encounters, to his wife, Coretta Scott, uh, where it sat for six weeks unopened, and then she opened it, played the tape, and uh, called her husband, caused huge problems in the marriage. The FBI apparently also sent a note saying you should commit suicide or we're going to reveal you as whatever, right? Now, there's a few things to be said about this, I think, that are important, which is if you want to be a moralizer for mankind, you really should keep your own house in order. Martin Luther King was a minister, uh, a deeply religious man, although when he was younger he was quite skeptical 
of the communist, um, uh, sorry, of the, <laughs> excuse me, he was quite skeptical of Christianity. But he was religious. He believed in the Ten Commandments. He was married in the eyes of God. He made vows to God himself uh, to stay true and faithful to his wife and to not have affairs. And he had dozens of affairs, at least that are known of. And there are apparently some quite salacious audio tapes of him saying extraordinary things during the act of sexual congress. And this is sort of important. I mean, if you really want to be the moral instructor for mankind, you might want to think about keeping your vows to God and your wife uh, about your fidelity, or at least not openly hiding and being guilt-ridden and all of that about your infidelities. Another thing that's interesting about this is, we'll get to this in a sec, Uh, Martin Luther King was a lefty for the most part. And, I mean, he started out apparently as a Republican, and then when Barry Goldwater, who was like the Ron Paul of the 60s, uh, when he opposed the Civil Rights Act, as did Reagan and some other conservatives, uh, because of the expansion of government power, not because they were against civil rights, uh, he then switched over to the Democrat uh, Party. And um, he was kind of on the left. Uh, he'd surrounded himself with communists, and we'll get to that, which is important. I know communist doesn't sound like a scary word these days. You know, what's in a Sheryl Crow song, right, my friend the communist? Uh, and But but in the day, back in the day, even before my time, it was uh, a, a, they were the, the, the far worse than al-Qaeda of their day. And um, so, yeah, I think we'll sort of get to that. But Martin Luther King had all these affairs, and this has really been covered up, as was his plagiarism. Uh, this was released, the news of it was released, and for more than a year to a year and a half, right, again, the largely left-wing media sat on this and didn't report it. And now they kind of cover up and don't report on his um, multiple affairs. Why is that? I mean, if you compare this to Clarence Thomas, right, uh, a conservative judge who um, Anita Hill accused of, of sexual harassment at work because he comp- said who put a a pubic hair on my Coke can or, or something like that. Well, that's nothing compared to Martin Luther King's endless gangbangs that occurred. And yet the left obviously covers up all of Martin Luther stuff and then goes straight to Clarence Thomas, even though he's a black man. And, and Herman McCain was supposed to have had these affairs because he wrote something nice in someone's book. No proof of it whatsoever. But then he was kicked out of the presidential race for fears of sexual harassment, sexual inappropriateness, maybe even having affairs. <gasps> Isn't that terrible? None, none of this, as far as I know, substantiated. But then Martin Luther King, who's on the left, gets all the, you know, get out of pussy free cards uh, and is not really talked about. But this is kind of important for a minister to openly break his vows to God and wife um, repeatedly is significant. And um, I mean, his defense was, he said, look, I'm on the road 27, 28 days a month. Fucking is a good stress reliever, in my words. Uh, sorry, his words, not mine. Uh, but uh, that only raises questions about his um, dedications as a father. He had four kids and didn't really seem to take a huge amount of interest in their upbringing. Certainly did not provide for them, despite winning the equivalent of $400,000 uh, as a peace prize, uh, I think he was the youngest man ever at the age of 35 to get a Nobel Peace Prize, and uh, didn't provide for his kids. He died without a will, even though he'd been had a, he'd had an assassination attempt once before and was continually talking about how he was going to die. He died interstate or without a will, which has caused nothing but fi- uh, fighting and conflict since. And he had no money left over, despite all his books and his speeches and all that. Uh, he donated the $400,000 straight to the civil rights. Um, 
which is, you know, nice and I guess well and good, but, you know, maybe your kids could actually get an education because, you know, charity begins at home. Uh, and like most people on the left, there's this chronic economic illiteracy. And by economic illiteracy, I don't mean that he was not a big fan of Milton Friedman. I mean, you can be economically literate and still on the le left. It's just kind of really rare. And so uh, he, he, he said... Uh, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that is two-thirds water? I mean, where would you even begin to unravel the economic illiteracy? Uh, he said, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that is two-thirds water? These are questions that must be asked, yes, but only by idiots, or at least economic idiots. Um, go drink some seawater and see how potable it is. Uh, go drink some pond water or stuff you can suck up with a straw from a moose track and see how many bacteria you can invite into your ecosystem. Uh, so, yeah, you've got to make it potable. You've got to transport it. You've got to, I mean, of course you have to pay bills. <laughs> what world is two-thirds water? Crazy. And um, it, I mean, yeah, seems like he was a sex addict. The recently uh, released interviews with Jackie Kennedy, um, she knew about it. Jackie confided how her brother-in-law, Bobby Kennedy, had told her the FBI had recorded King trying to arrange a sex party on the night before the March on Washington in August 1963. Um, she said, uh, I can't see a picture of Martin Luther King without thinking, you know, that man's terrible. Bobby had told her that King was calling up all these girls and arranging for a party of men and women. I mean, a sort of orgy. And, um, of course, she knew something about uh, sex addicts being married to John uh, F. Kennedy. Uh, you know, no woman could uh, pick up a pencil safely around that guy. And um, he was, um, back to the economic illiteracy, he was against automation because he felt that automation destroyed jobs, uh, and he said, uh, when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. So the problem is computers. Um, I mean, easy peasy. I mean, if you want to get rid of joblessness, just outlaw farm machinery, and everyone has to go pick their crops by hand, there will be no unemployment and very few people left, because most people will starve to death. So... Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the lefty stuff. Uh, he never openly said he was a Marxist. Let's be fair. Let's be fair. Uh, privately, according to a number of people, he did say that he was a Marxist. That is what people say. Um, this is what he did say. He said, I always look at Marx with a yes and a no. And there were some things that Karl Marx did that were very good. Some very good things. As that preacher repetition if you read him, you can see that this man had a great passion for social justice. But Karl Marx got messed up, first because he didn't stick with that Jesus that he had read about, uh, but secondly because he didn't even stick with Hegel. Now this is where I leave Brother Marx and move on towards the kingdom of brotherhood. I am simply saying that God never intended for some of his children to live in inordinate superfluous wealth, while others live in abject deadening poverty. In another article about Martin Luther King, King sorry, Robert Clegg of National Review applauds King for speaking out against the oppression of communism. To gain the support of many liberal whites in the early years, King did make a few mild denunciations of communism. He also claimed in a 65 Playboy interview, I think he was the interview, not the pinup, that there are, quote, as many communists in this freedom movement as there are Eskimos in Florida. This was a bold-faced lie. Though King was never a communist, was always critical of the Soviet Union, he had knowingly surrounded himself with communists. His closest advisor, Stanley Levison, was a communist, a Jewish communist? Can't be as was his assistant, Jack O'Dell. Um, Robert, and later John F. Kennedy, repeatedly warned him to stop associating himself with communists, but he never did. He frequently spoke in front of communist front groups like the National Lawyers Guild and the Lawyers for Democratic Action. 
he even attended seminars at the Highlander Folk School, um, not, you know, crossed sword dancing, but a communist front which taught communist tactics, where Rosa Parks also apparently uh, studied uh, and so on. Now, it's hard in this day and age to understand what an unbelievable threat communism was to the planet. Worse than Nazism. Far, the death count for communism is far higher than Nazism, uh, and it was very active, and there were literally hundreds of communist spies in the State Department in the U.S. Uh, uh, FDR's closest advisor at the Yalta Conference was a communist. This is staggering. You know, the, the House... Um, McCarthyism and so on didn't come out of nowhere, right? That there was great fears and great realities that communists had infiltrated the highest levels of the U.S. government and were significantly affecting domestic policy and, and foreign policy and, and so on. Now, for you young folks, uh, it's, it's important to understand what, I mean, communism was far more dangerous to America and to the West than Al-Qaeda could ever conceivably be, could ever conceivably be. And if you can imagine there being a public figure, sympathetic public figure in America, who was surrounded by open members of al-Qaeda and, and promoting open members and taking advice and being photographed with and who had attended al-Qaeda training camps and so on, this would be inconceivable, right? You, you can't surround yourself with al-Qaeda, take advice from al-Qaeda operatives, attend al-Qaeda training camps and be sympathetically portrayed in the American media. But communism is a different matter, and we'll go into that why another time. But he didn't openly identify as being a communist, but he certainly was uh, a, uh, a socialist, a, a democratic socialist, as he, as he called it. And that's, uh, that's quite important. Uh, so he was very much for the forced redistribution of wealth, which is, again, an act of violence, an act of coercion. Uh, he wanted to unite blacks and poor whites in a sort of labor movement, uh, which was strongly socialist, uh, and so on. But he was, uh, you know, sympathetic to communists. He employed communists. He took advice from communists. He was surrounded by communists in many ways. And this is why he was under uh, surveillance, because this was some very dangerous stuff for America at the time. There's strong arguments to be made that the advice that FDR received at the Yalta Conference was instrumental in losing the entire Eastern Bloc to communism for another 40-plus years. Uh, you know, surrendering hundreds of millions of people into totalitarianism was uh, brutal. And a communist also, a communist infiltration in the United States government was instrumental in helping uh, the fumble under the Democrats that lost China uh, to communism. Uh, so you know, massive, massive catastrophes. Uh, and it was an extraordinarily dangerous time, and communism was an unbelievably murderous virus uh, all throughout the world, and those uh, who didn't die often envied the dead. So was he anti-violence? No, he was not anti-violence. He just wanted the state to do uh, the violence for him. And was he economically literate? No, but he kept talking about economic uh, affairs, which meant that he did not know the limits of his own capacities. He was a plagiarist. He lied about getting his doctorate uh, and... Uh, he lied to get his doctorate and hid that information. And um, the, the, the prediction from uh, people who say that violence doesn't solve problems is that if you use the government to try and solve some complex social problem, then you will end up with that problem getting worse. Now, in the short run, it may look better, it may appear better, and it may, in fact, get better in the short run, but in the long run, you're in big trouble if you use uh, coercion, right, um, pretty badly. So 
the argument would be that since Martin Luther King and the majority of black leaders were pro-state power, right? There were some, some exceptions, uh, Walter Sowell and so on. But the majority of the black leaders were pro-state power. We're going to use the power of the state to achieve our goals and to make things better. And this is fundamentally why he is still revered and praised, despite his extraordinary personal failings. Uh, and again, despite being a, a staggeringly God-given uh, talent uh, uh, of an orator. Uh, it's because he was an excuse to extend state, state power. He was an excuse to, you know that, that there's just an excuse to extend, expand state power for, for one simple obvious reason, which is state power is necessary to help blacks do better. So we're going to put in massive amounts of state power to help blacks do better. And then what happens? Well, blacks end up doing worse. Is that power taken away? No, because the, the calls of racism have achieved what is wanted, which is an expansion of state power. And the fact that it doesn't solve the problem in the long run and only makes it work doesn't matter because the problem is only ex the excuse for the expansion of state power. Remember the war on poverty in the 1960s, LBJ's Great Society, the war on poverty? Oh. Poverty is in many ways worse now than it was when this all started. In the 1950s and early 1960s, the rates of poverty in America was declining one percentage point every single year. The government was in grave danger of running out of victims whose cause it could triumph and whose uh, supposed abject uh, victimhood it could wave in front of people and get them to surrender even more economic and political rights. So the market was solving the problem of poverty uh, in a way that was completely unprecedented until we saw the recent amazing, staggering 100 million plus successes of getting people out of poverty in increasingly free market India and China, the greatest end of poverty the world has ever seen. You don't really hear much about it because that's less state power and the media and academics and all of that are pro-state power for a variety of reasons we can get into another time. So racism was just this thing which was like, oh, okay, well, I don't have a, I can't really say, well, I just want more power. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to create this situation where I'm going to say there's this terrible problem in society and only the state can solve it. And therefore, if you're against the expansion of state power, you must be against solving this problem, right? I mean, we hear this all the time, right? If you are against the EPA, like the Environmental Protection Agency, because it's a huge grab uh, of state power over property rights put in by, remember, that ultra-conservative Nixon in the 70s. If you're against the EPA, well, you must not care about the environment. If you're against welfare, you must not care about the poor. If you're against Obamacare, you must not care that people get better. Uh, and if you are against uh, 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 quotas or, or affirmative action or, or all of this stuff, then you must be racist. It's what happens when people don't have arguments. They just resort to false dichotomy ad hominems, right? I mean, this is the way of the world until we get smart enough to stop doing stupid things to ourselves as a species. So racism just happened to be the thing in the 60s. Did it really solve the problems? Well, I mean, you know, blacks uh, got uh, better for a while. And again, I'll put links to this below. And, and now blacks have been doing a lot worse. And is anyone talking about reversing these policies now that blacks are doing worse again? No, of course not, because the purpose of the expansion of state power has been achieved. Illegitimacy has always been a problem in uh, black society, and uh, at least since the 1950s, but it's much worse now, right? So in 1950, only 16% of black kids were born uh, outside of marriage, only 16%. In 2010, that's 73%, right? From 16% to 73%. Uh, that is pretty bad, very bad. 
In the early 1960s, it had gone from 16% to 20%. There was only 2 to 3% of white kids who were born outside of wedlock. And uh, it's, you know, almost three quarters by 2010, and uh, three-tenths of white births are occurring outside of marriage. That is, uh, that's catastrophic. Uh, you know, being born to a single mom is the single worst predictor for a kid's uh, future outcome. What was the unemployment rate for blacks in 1954? It was 10% for black men. In 2012, it was 17%. And um, how many blacks had spent time in prison in 1974? 9%. How many blacks spent time in prison in 2010? 16%, almost double. Just wretched. And this is what happens. You know, you, you plant a demon seed, you raise a flower of fire, as the song goes, and when you reach for the power of the state, uh, you almost permanently and almost inevitably destroy whatever progress you claim to, um, to, to be interested in solving. I can say, I would really like this woman to go out with me, but if I put a bag of chloroform over her head and throw her into the back of a windowsless van, she is driving around with me, but she ain't going to wake up liking me a whole lot. So violence may appear to solve problems, especially the coercion of the state. It may appear to solve problems in the short run, but the expansion of state power that comes from people who want to use the state to solve problems always ends up disrupting and destroying societies in the long run. Happy Martin Luther King Day. When the communists took over a country, one of the first things that they did was to confiscate all the privately held weapons. But even more insidious than the theft of the people's weapons was the theft of their history. Official communist historians rewrote history to fit the current party line. In many countries, revered national heroes were excised from the history books, or their real deeds were distorted to fit communist ideology, and communist killers and criminals were converted into official saints. Holidays were declared in honor of the beasts who murdered countless nations. Did you know that much the same process has occurred right here in America? Every January, the media go into a kind of almost spastic frenzy of adulation for the so-called Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. King has even had a national holiday declared in his honor, an honor accorded to no other American. Let's take a look at this modern-day plastic god. Born in 1929, King was the son of a black preacher known at the time only as Daddy King. Daddy King named his son Michael. In 1935, Daddy King had an inspiration to name himself after the Protestant reformer Martin Luther. He declared to his congregation that henceforth they were to refer to him as Martin Luther King and to his son as Martin Luther King Jr. None of this name-changing was ever legalized in court. Daddy King's son's real name is to this day Michael King. 
the first public sermon that King ever gave in 1947 at the Ebenezer Baptist Church was plagiarized from a homily by Protestant clergyman Harry Emerson Fosdick entitled, Life is What You Make It, according to the testimony of King's best friend of that time, Reverend Larry H. Williams. The first book that King wrote, Stride Toward Freedom, was plagiarized from numerous sources, all unattributed, according to documentation recently assembled by sympathetic King scholars Keith D. Miller, Ira G. Zepp Jr., and David J. Garrow. And no less an authoritative source than the four senior editors of the papers of Martin Luther King Jr., an official publication of the Martin Luther King Center for Nonviolent Social Change Incorporated, whose staff included King's widow Coretta, stated of King's writings at both Boston University and Crozer Theological Seminary, quote, Judged retroactively by the standards of academic scholarship, his writings are tragically flawed by numerous instances of plagiarism. Appropriated passages are particularly evident in his writings in his major field of graduate study, systematic theology. Close quote. King's essay, The Place of Reason and Experience in Finding God, written at Crozer, pirated passages from the work of theologian Edgar S. Breitman, author of The Finding of God. Another of King's theses, Contemporary Continental Theology, written shortly after he entered Boston University, was largely stolen from a book by Walter Marshall Horton. King's doctoral dissertation, A Comparison of the Conceptions of God in the Thinking of Paul Tillich and Harry Nelson Wyman, for which he was awarded a Ph.D. in theology, contains more than 50 complete sentences plagiarized from the Ph.D. dissertation of Dr. Jack Boozer the place of reason in Paul Tillich's concept of God. According to the Martin Luther King papers, in King's dissertation, quote, only 49% of sentences in the section on Tillich contain five or more words that were King's own, close quote. In the Journal of American History, June 1991, page 87, David J. Garrow, a leftist academic who is sympathetic to King, says that King's wife, Coretta Scott King, who also served as his secretary, was an accomplice in his repeated cheating. Reading Garrow's article, one is led to the inescapable conclusion that King cheated because he had chosen for himself a political role in which a Ph.D. would be useful, and lacking the intellectual ability to obtain the title fairly, went after it by any means necessary. Why then, one might ask, did the professors at Crozer Theological Seminary and Boston University grant him passing grades and a Ph.D.? Garrow states on page 89, quote, King's academic compositions, especially at Boston University, were almost without exception little more than summary descriptions and comparisons of others' writings. Nonetheless, the papers almost always received desirable letter grades strongly suggesting that King's professors did not expect more." Close quote. The editors of the Martin Luther King Jr. papers state that, quote, "...the failure of King's teachers to notice his pattern of textual appropriation is somewhat remarkable." Close quote. But researcher Michael Hoffman tells us, quote, "...actually the malfeasance of the professors is not at all remarkable. King was politically correct." He was black, and he had ambitions. 
the leftist professors were happy to award a doctorate to such a candidate, no matter how much fraud was involved. Nor is it any wonder that it has taken 40 years for the truth about King's record of nearly constant intellectual piracy to be made public. Close quote. Supposed scholars who in reality shared King's vision of a racially mixed and Marxist America purposely covered up his cheating for decades. The cover-up still continues. From the New York Times of October 11, 1991, page 15, we learn that on October 10th of that year, a committee of researchers at Boston University admitted that, quote, there is no question but that Dr. King plagiarized in the dissertation. However, despite its finding, the committee said that, quote, no thought should be given to the revocation of Dr. King's doctoral degree, an action the panel said would serve no purpose, close quote. No purpose indeed. Justice demands that in light of his willful fraud as a student, the titles reverend and doctor should be removed from King's name. Well, friends, he is not a legitimate reverend, he is not a bona fide PhD, and his name isn't really Martin Luther King Jr. What's left? Just a sexual degenerate, an America-hating communist, and a criminal betrayer of even the interests of his own people. On Labor Day 1957, a special meeting was attended by Martin Luther King and four others at a strange institution called the Highlander Folk School in Monteagle, Tennessee. The Highlander Folk School was a communist front, having been founded by Miles Horton, Communist Party organizer for Tennessee, and Don West, organizer for North Carolina. The leaders of this meeting with King were the aforementioned Horton and West, along with Abner Berry and James Dombrowski all open and acknowledged members of the Communist Party USA. The agenda of the meeting was a plan to tour the southern states to initiate demonstrations and riots. From 1955 to 1960, Martin Luther King's associate, advisor, and personal secretary was one Bayard Rustin. In 1936, Rustin joined the Young Communist League at New York City College. Convicted of draft dodging, he went to prison for two years in 1944. On January 23, 1953, the Los Angeles Times reported his conviction and sentencing to jail for 60 days for lewd vagrancy and homosexual perversion. Rustin attended the 16th convention of the Communist Party USA in February 1957. One month later, he and King founded the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or SCLC for short. The president of the SCLC was Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. The vice president of the SCLC was the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, who was also the president of an identified communist front known as the Southern Conference Educational Fund, an organization whose field director, Mr. Carl Brayden, was simultaneously a national sponsor of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, of which you may have heard. The program director of the SCLC was the Reverend Andrew Young, 
In more recent years, Jimmy Carter's ambassador to the UN and mayor of Atlanta. Young, by the way, was trained at the Highlander Folk School, previously mentioned. Soon after returning from a trip to Moscow in 1958, Rustin organized the first of King's famous marches on Washington. The official organ of the Communist Party, the Worker, openly declared the march to be a communist project. Although he left King's employ as secretary in 1961, Rustin was called upon by King to be second in command of the much larger march on Washington, which took place on August 28, 1964. Bayard Rustin's replacement in 1961 as secretary and advisor to King was Jack O'Dell, also known as Hunter Pitts O'Dell. According to official records, in 1962, Jack O'Dell was a member of the National Committee of the Communist Party USA. He had been listed as a Communist Party member as early as 1956. O'Dell was also given the job of Acting Executive Director for SCLC activities for the entire Southeast, according to the St. Louis Globe Democrat of October 26, 1962. At that time, there were still some patriots in the press corps, and word of Odell's party membership became known. What did King do? Shortly after the negative news reports, King fired Odell with much fanfare. And he then, without the fanfare, immediately hired him again as director of the New York office of the SCLC, as confirmed by the Richmond News Leader of September 27, 1963. Also in 1963, a black man from Monroe, North Carolina, named Robert Williams, made a trip to Beijing, China. Exactly 20 days before King's 1964 march on Washington, Williams successfully urged Mao Zedong to speak out on behalf of King's movement. Mr. Williams was also around this time maintaining his primary residence in Cuba from which he made regular broadcasts to the southern United States three times a week from high-power AM transmitters in Havana under the title Radio Free Dixie. In these broadcasts, he urged violent attacks by blacks against white Americans. During this period, Williams wrote a book entitled Negroes with Guns. The writer of the foreword for this book none other than Martin Luther King, Jr. It is also interesting to note that the editors and publishers of this book were to a man all supporters of the infamous Fair Play for Cuba Committee. According to King's biographer and sympathizer, David J. Garrow, quote, King privately described himself as a Marxist, close quote. In his 1981 book, the FBI and Martin Luther King Jr. Garrow quotes King as saying in SCLC staff meetings, quote, We have moved into a new era, which must be an era of revolution. The whole structure of American life must be changed. We are engaged in the class struggle. Close quote. Jewish communist Stanley Levison can best be described as King's behind-the-scenes handler. Levison, who had for years been in charge of the secret funneling of Soviet funds to the Communist Party USA, was King's mentor 
and was actually the brains behind many of King's more successful ploys. It was Levison who edited King's book, Stride Toward Freedom. It was Levison who arranged for a publisher. Levison even prepared King's income tax returns. It was Levison who really controlled the fundraising and agitation activities of the SCLC. Levison wrote many of King's speeches. King described Levison as one of his, quote, closest friends. The Federal Bureau of Investigation had for many years been aware of Stanley Levison's communist activities. It was Levison's close association with King that brought about the initial FBI interest in King. Lest you be tempted to believe the controlled media's lie about racists in the FBI being out to get King, you should be aware that the man most responsible for the FBI's probe of King was Assistant Director William C. Sullivan. Sullivan describes himself as a liberal and says that initially, quote, I was 100% for King because I saw him as an effective and badly needed leader for black people and their desire for civil rights, close quote. The probe of King not only confirmed their suspicions about King's communist beliefs and associations, but it also revealed King to be a despicable hypocrite, an immoral degenerate, and a worthless charlatan. According to Assistant Director Sullivan, who had direct access to the surveillance files on King, which are denied the American people, King had embezzled or misapplied substantial amounts of money contributed to the civil rights movement. King used SCLC funds to pay for liquor and numerous prostitutes, both black and white, who were brought to his hotel rooms, often two at a time, for drunken sex parties, which sometimes lasted for several days. These types of activities were the norm for King's speaking and organizing tours. In fact, an outfit called the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee, which is putting on display the two bedrooms from the Lorraine Motel, where King stayed the night before he was shot, has declined to depict in any way the occupants of those rooms. That, according to exhibit designer Gerard Eisterhold, would be, quote, close to blasphemy. The reason? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spent his last night on earth having sexual intercourse with two women at the motel and physically beating and abusing a third. Sullivan also stated that King had alienated the affections of numerous married women. According to Sullivan, who in 30 years with the Bureau had seen everything there was to be seen of the seamy side of life, King was one of only seven people he had ever encountered who was such a total degenerate. Noting the violence that almost invariably attended King's supposedly non-violent marches, Sullivan's probe revealed a very different King from the carefully crafted public image. King welcomed members of many different black groups as members of his SCLC, many of them advocates and practitioners of violence. King's only admonition on the subject was that they should embrace, quote, tactical nonviolence, close quote. Sullivan also relates an incident in which King met in a financial conference with Communist Party representatives, not knowing that one of the participants was an infiltrator actually working for the FBI. 
J. Edgar Hoover personally saw to it that documented information on King's communist connections was provided to the President and to Congress, and conclusive information from FBI files was also provided to major newspapers and newswire services. But were the American people informed of King's real nature? No, for even in the 1960s, the fix was in. The controlled media and the bought politicians were bound and determined to push their racial mixing program on America. King was their man, and nothing was going to get in their way. With a few minor exceptions, these facts have been kept from the American people. The pro-King propaganda machine grinds on, and it is even reported that a serious proposal has been made to add some of King's writings as a new book in the Bible. Ladies and gentlemen, the purpose of this radio program is far greater than to prove to you the immorality and subversion of this man called King. I want you to start to think for yourselves. I want you to consider this. What are the forces and motivation behind the controlled media's active promotion of King? What does it tell you about our politicians when you see them almost without exception falling all over themselves to honor King as a national hero? What does it tell you about our society when any public criticism of this moral leper and communist functionary is considered grounds for dismissal? What does it tell you about the controlled media when you see how they have successfully suppressed the truth and held out a picture of King that can only be described as a colossal lie. You need to think, my fellow Americans. You desperately need to wake up. You may be blind or lame, 
Maybe living in another country Under another name But you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes, you are You're gonna have to serve somebody Serve somebody Well, it may be the devil Or it may be the Lord But you're gonna have to serve somebody living in a mansion you might live in a dome you may own guns and you may even own tanks you may be somebody's landlord you may even own banks but you're gonna have to serve somebody yes you're gonna have to serve somebody well it may be the devil Somebody. 